Holiday House Books for Young People presents children's book authors Polly Horvath and Christina Us in conversation with publisher and editor Margaret Ferguson. This is Margaret Ferguson, publisher of Margaret Ferguson Books at Holiday House, and I'm happy to be talking with children's book authors Polly Horvath and Christina Us. Polly is the author of many books for children, including Everything on a Waffle, a Newbery Honor book, and The Canning Season, winner of the National Book Award. She and I have worked on and off for over 30 years. I published Christina's first novel, The Adventures of a Girl Called Bicycle, in 2018, and it received many accolades, including being selected as a Texas Blue Bonnet Master Book and a Kirkus Reviews Best Book of the Year. Polly and Christina both have new books out this year, Pine Island Home and The Colossus of Rose. Polly, can you give us a brief description of Pine Island Home? Hi, I'm delighted to be here with famous editor and publisher Margaret Ferguson and wonderful writer Christina Us. My new book, Pine Island Home, is the story of the four McCready sisters who suddenly orphaned in Borneo make their way to a great aunt's home on Pine Island off the coast of British Columbia. When they get there, they find the aunt has suddenly died, leaving them with no guardian. Afraid that social services will split them up in order to house them, they hatch a plan to tell no one of their situation and struggle to stay together, keep their secret, and survive as a family. Christina, tell us about The Colossus of Rhodes. Hi, Margaret and Polly. I'd be happy to. The Colossus of Rhodes is the story of Rick Rusek and his talking stomach who decide to fix the worst traffic jams in Los Angeles in order to save Rick's family's catering business and to prove he has a talent that matters. One of the things I love about these books is how they capture a place. In Pine Island Home, I can smell the ocean and the pine trees, hear the seagulls, and see the Arctic turns because of the way Polly describes them. The birds turn from one side to the next, looking like paper airplanes. Their sharp lines slicing the air, the light reflecting off their brilliant wings as if they were glass. Arctic turns, exclaimed Natasha, repeating the magic of their name, awed by seeing a bird she never expected to. Was the setting for your book inspired by a particular place that you like to visit, and do you feel that you have a special connection to nature? I spent summers of my youth um, in northern Wisconsin in an area that was still quite wild and winters in Kalamazoo, Michigan, which was very sort of white picket fence civilized. And I was always happier in the quiet of the woods than with a lot of people, maybe because I'm intensely private and an introvert. But the peace and quiet of less populous areas is what really kind of appeals to me. Now I live on Vancouver Island off the coast of British Columbia with bears and wolves and cougars and woods, and it's similar to the fictional Pine Island. Christina, you lived in Los Angeles for a while and based your setting on that experience. Traffic is such a huge part of Los Angeles life, and Rick describes what he hears out his townhouse window. The constant noise of cars driving by outside Rick's window was what he imagined the sound of ocean waves to be like. That is, if the ocean's rhythmic whoosh-shush got punctuated by the occasional shark on a thundering motorcycle or by dolphins booming bass-heavy hip-hop. What are some other quintessential Los Angeles experiences that you wove into your story and why? Traffic is such a defining part of life in Los Angeles. Uh, I lived in L.A. without a car, and I had to bike, walk, take the bus, or have other people drive me around just like Rick. 
So a few typical experiences that I shared with Rick included uh, both of us getting chased by territorial dogs and seeing people inside their cars in stop and go traffic doing things other than driving those cars, like reading magazines or holding a phone and a cup of coffee in both hands and steering with one elbow. So when I lived there, if I needed to go anywhere outside a two-mile radius of my townhouse, traffic controlled all the choices I could make and circumscribed where I could realistically go. I added the detail into my story that poor Rick has never visited the beach, and that was meaningful to me. I love the beach, and I assumed when I moved to L.A., I'd spend oodles of time there. I didn't have much money and relied on outings in nature for relaxation and fun. Uh, However, I had a rude awakening that not all of L.A. is close to the beach. Getting there was a ridiculously unpleasant, hours-long undertaking. So in three years living there, I went about three times. Uh, And a happier L.A. experience that I included in Colossus was creating a beloved, independently-owned donut shop. That is a quintessential L.A. experience, uh, especially in the San Fernando Valley. It is full, seriously full of non-chain, unique neighborhood donut shops. In Pine Island Home, the oldest sister, Fiona, must take charge of her sisters and finds this daunting and somewhat frightening because she fears they will be separated. Without her parents, she has come to see her sisters in a different way. She dearly loved both the good and inconvenient aspects of her sister's natures and their natures had become somehow part of her own so that she did not even know who she was without the other three. She did not want to be apart from them. She feared aloneness for herself, but she feared it more for her sisters. The pain it would bring to her was terrible to contemplate, but pain for them was unthinkable. This is such a beautiful description of what it means to love someone, family or friend. What do you hope readers will take away from this and what Fiona has realized? Well, I don't ever really think about people taking anything away from my books. Um, I feel that I have the experience of the book first. And then if it's something that someone else has experienced and it resonates with them, then that makes me happy. You never know when a book goes out how it's going to affect people, who's going to read it. Occasionally on book tours, you get these little revelations. In Atlanta, once a woman came to a reading to tell me that her best friend in college had read The Canning Season mid-semester and had immediately dropped out moved to Maine and became an organic farmer because Ratchet and her love of gardening resonated with her. And she suddenly realized that that's what she wanted to do with her life. And I I was delighted about that. I think her parents probably wanted to kill me. Um, Another time I was speaking in Flagstaff, Arizona about everything on a waffle. And the library audience was largely 10-year-old girls and their mothers. But right up front and center, there's this middle-aged man in a greasy coveralls and work boots. And he didn't have a child attached to him. And he kept beaming lovingly at me through the whole talk. And I was kind of frantically trying to figure out who he was with and what he was doing there. He wasn't my typical audience. And afterwards, during the book signing, He came up with this dog-eared paperback. He'd been furling and unfurling all during my talk. And it was a copy of An Occasional Cow. And he was almost tearful in thanking me for writing it. He said it was his favorite book. And it had gotten gotten him through all the difficult times in his life. Uh, And that was amazing on all kinds of levels. First of all, he wasn't, as I say, my typical audience. When I was writing the book, I didn't imagine it going to someone like this. Um, And the other thing was that it was a romp. 
it was basically a farce. And I would have said there was no there there and certainly nothing that would have ever uh, gotten anybody through anything, let alone the most difficult times of their life. And yet for this man, it had. And those types of things where that affects people that way, where they leave college and become a farmer, where it changes someone's life, that for me, I think has probably been um, even nicer moments in my writing life than something like uh, getting the National Book Award where somebody's telling you your book is really good in this way, someone's telling you that it's really affected them in some way that's been useful to them. So I kind of feel that the books go out there and do what they're going to do, and I'm happy that if they're useful to people. In the Colossus of Rhodes, Rick overhears his parents talking about how they how concerned they are that they're going to lose their catering business because of the traffic and that they want to keep this a secret from him, which he finds highly insulting. He thinks he can save his parents' business by making small changes in traffic patterns that he hopes will have a big impact on the way traffic moves. He tries out his theory by duct taping some abandoned road signs over some existing ones in a particularly snarly intersection and discovers he is right. There's something wonderful about proving to yourself that you can do something to make a difference. Yet Rick can't tell his parents about his discovery and goes rogue. What do you hope readers will learn from Rick's experience? Well, I do feel that kids are often told only a few talents matter. Like uh, you need to get good grades or be good at sports or good at music. And I want to encourage my readers to find the things for which they have a genuine natural affinity, no matter how odd or seemingly insignificant those might be. And then they can dream of ways that those talents can make a positive difference in the world. I want the readers to think that their talents truly do matter. Even if it's making jewelry out of macaroni or training their dog to whistle or raking leaves into the best jumping piles, if they do it well, I want them to be proud and find a way to share that talent with the world. In both your books, you've written about unlikely friendships. In Pine Island Home, Al is a famous writer who is now a has-been, drinks too much beer, and claims he doesn't like children. The girls ask him to be their pretend guardian in case anyone becomes suspicious that they're living alone, and he agrees to do it if the girls will bring him dinner every night and pay him $20 a week. Yet in the end, Al is changed by his relationship with the girls, particularly the youngest, Charlie. Tell us a little bit about what Al learned about himself because of her. I don't know that Al really learned anything about himself. I'd say that he formed a friendship with Charlie because of their shared love of Billy the Bear, um, that bonds are often formed because of a shared love of a third party. In the Colossus of Rhodes, Rick has a unique relationship with his stomach, who is his alter ego to the point where his stomach has to remind him, you know I'm an organ of your body and I only talk to you in your imagination, right? Part of the reason Rick talks to his stomach is that he has terrible motion sickness, which is a problem if you live in L.A. He always checks in with his stomach before they get in a car. Can we do this? But later, his stomach also becomes a kind of moral compass for him. I'm not sure motion sickness has ever been dealt with in a children's book this way. What made you decide to turn Rick's stomach into a character? I think Rick's stomach turns itself into a character. Uh, It was not my original plan, 
Uh, Rick wasn't even carsick in the first draft of my story, but once I gave him this nauseous affliction, I wanted to be able to weave it into the story in a way that wouldn't gross out readers, and you wisely encouraged me to avoid being too graphic about car sickness. Uh, so somehow, as I was working that out, Rick's stomach piped up inside my head and started having opinions and giving advice. And I got such a kick out of giving it free reign to speak up on the page. I, I thought readers would appreciate it too. Uh, and the talking stomach turned out to be a way of sharing some of Rick's most elemental feelings, shall we call them gut feelings, and show his vulnerability, his distress, and his hopefulness in this pretty funny way. And by the way, I've gotten feedback from young readers who are coping with motion sickness, and they tell me they can totally relate to the story, and they do not think the book was gross at all. Yay! Pine Island Home is an orphan story, and there are a lot of children's books written about orphans. Is there a particular reason that you chose to write one? Um, I used to think that the reason there's so many orphan children's books is that the first rule of writing for kids is to get rid of the parents. Because when the parents aren't there hovering, the child has to face the challenges and revelations about life without a buffer or um, the revelations become her own instead of values and ideas being foisted upon them by grown-ups. However, um, I, I'm not so sure that that's the case for me anymore. I, th I, I've written, um, several non-parents in the picture stories, and I think I put the, um, children in my stories in a familiar situation because that's what, as writers, you do. You choose something you know in order to discover other things you don't know. So that you can, as Joan Didion says about her own writing, find out what you think. And I had parents that were wonderful people, um, but they weren't really there as parents. My father was wonderful, but uh, so remote, he was unreachable, really. And my mother really wanted me to mother her, probably because her own mother had died so early. So I grew up uh, without any kind of real parental figures and feeling more that I had to take care of my parents. And so when I set my book somewhere, I set them within the parameters of the situation that I knew and was familiar with. Everything on a waffle and Pine Island home, both have children who've lost their parents, but the ideas are explored there completely different, are completely different. Waffles about what we believe without evidence. And Pine Island home is about the terrible pain of knowing that we will be separated from everyone we love at some point. Had I grown up in a household with strong parental figures, I could have taken those same themes and set them in stories where there were intact uh, families and parents. Um, that part, I think the atmosphere and, and the characters in the story, is, the trappings, so to speak, is not, um, I mean, it's important, but it's not endemic to the theme. The Colossus of Rhodes talks about cars versus bicycles and the impact cars have on the environment. Christina, is this something that you are particularly interested in? It definitely is. I have always said that if or when I become a millionaire author, I'm using my wealth to put bike paths all over the country so people can get around without cars. Also, I read a ton of middle grade books uh, because they've been one of my favorite categories of books ever since I turned eight and decades later, it's still the case. And I noticed vividly after becoming a mother and reading with my children, how the children in most popular stories often get around without having to be driven anywhere by adults. Uh, this does not reflect my experience uh, or my suburban kids' experience of childhood. 
if I wanted to see a friend or participate in an activity as a kid, somebody had to drive me going to and from school. I was on the bus. And even my kids who are being raised by a bike crazy environment protecting mom, nonetheless, uh, in a typical time, will climb inside a vehicle most days of the week. And as much as I think it's awful, I wanted to have that aspect in Colossus. And I feel like so many young readers will recognize the experience of having little to no control of how they get around. Food and cooking play an important part in Pine Island Home as sustenance, but also a form of creativity. One of the sisters even writes a cookbook and hopes to have it published. Holly, are you a foodie? Yeah, I don't think I'd really um, fall into that category because I have popcorn for dinner about five nights a week. Um, I suppose in the sense that um, I I put a lot of it into my books. Uh, But I'm not primarily interested in the food when I do that. David White writes, I'd come to the conclusion that our personal identity, which we think is based upon our personal beliefs and opinions, is actually more of a function of our ability to pay attention to the world around us. If we had very little in the way of attention for the world, then we actually have little in the way of real existence. And I think food is a way to have that attention. Do you read cookbooks for pleasure? If so, what's your favorite one? I do, but I read the writers who, again, use food as a way of paying attention um, so that the attention is actually becomes their identity and their real existence. And, and MFK Fisher is one of my favorites. She's a brilliant prose stylist and maybe the most awake and alive writer I've ever found. Um, I like Lori Colwin too and Ruth Reichel. I'm a vegetarian so Rick's obsession with cheeseburgers in the Colossus of Rhodes didn't exactly resonate with me. You even insult lentils. So I actually felt bad about that bit, the lentil insult. Uh, I was a vegetarian when I was younger, and I love lentils. And one of my favorite recipes is Lebanese njadra, which is lentils and rice with fried onions. But my son can't stand lentils. When I cook them, he takes a tiny bite, and his face screws up in agony, and he washes it down with a whole glass of water. But then he pretends he's fine when he, when he sees me watching him. And he'll say, mmm, so good. <laughs> so that's a vivid thing that happens with lentils in my house. And that colored Rick's experience with his mom's cooking experiment. In your book, you touch upon art and creativity. Rick's friend Mila and her Girl Scout troop refurbish old road signs by painting over them so they can be hung in public spaces. She explains to Rick how art can make a difference. It's like this, the right art makes the right difference to the right people. Then their happy feelings start rippling along, which makes other people happy. And before you know it, chain reaction, happiness in all directions. I find that such an inspiring thought. Are you interested in street art? So much, yes. The street artist in Colossus, uh, the character Mrs. Diamond, was partly inspired by a real person living in my Los Angeles neighborhood who had a front yard full of fanciful metal sculptures. And I even got to interview him for the local newspaper, and it turns out he had this huge hidden backyard chock full of even more fabulous creations. And I get a big jolt of joy from seeing a piece of street art something put out there for no other purpose other than to beautify or add eccentricity to a public space. 
I wish I could put some huge weird sculpture in my front yard. I dream of putting a manatee reading a book for some reason. And I did get permission from my town to paint bicycles all over my fire hydrant. And I love seeing pedestrians give it a double take. Uh, and one other thing I'm finding now that I do virtual visits about the book, I'm finding about street art all over the country. And I did an event uh, in Houston with Brazos Bookshop, and I heard there's an iconic bit of street art there, a railroad bridge overpass that has the words, be someone, painted on it. And every now and then the city paints over it, but a guerrilla public servant always replaces it. So it can keep sparking that joy and encouraging the Houstonites to be someone. And what about duct tape, which also plays an important role in the book? I have the utmost respect for duct tape. I think we all should. Other than books and something with which to write, duct tape is what I'd want with me if I ended up stranded on a desert island. Christina is newer to writing than Polly is. I remember Polly telling me many years ago that as a teen, she sent her first query letter to legendary editor Francis Foster, who at that point was working for me at Ferris Rouse and Giroux. And Christina recently told me that she found an envelope for a query letter addressed to me from years ago when I still worked there that she never mailed. I think you said something like, what's meant to be is meant to be. Christina, what surprised you about publishing a book? And Polly, what is the biggest lesson you've learned throughout your career? I was surprised to discover that the community of children's book authors is super friendly and welcoming and supportive. I sort of thought we'd never know each other and we'd all be in our own introvert silos, just quietly writing and having no contact. Uh, instead, I'm tickled to pieces to be able to communicate with this group of people I truly believe are making the world a better place. And I don't think I've really learned anything. I mean, to be perfectly honest, it's, it's pretty much the same process as when I was eight. I remember reading this interview with Meryl Streep years ago when she just finished doing the movie adaptation, and the interviewer uh, was asking her about doing it, and she said she was absolutely terrified, and the interviewer said, well, how can you be terrified you're Meryl Streep? And she said, well, it doesn't it doesn't make any difference. I Every time I come to a new role... I know absolutely, I come to it knowing absolutely nothing. And I think, what do I know? I know nothing. And, and it's as if I've never done it before. And I'm absolutely filled with terror. But that's, she said, what you have to do in order to start true. And I think that that's true with writing too. Every time you come to the blank page, you realize you know absolutely nothing. And it's going to be a completely different experience. It's there. I think there's really nothing uh, more zen than writing. What aspects of your novels changed the most from first draft to final product? Did anything stay consistent the whole time? Christina? My novel changed a bunch. Most of the changes were geared towards making sure the action was more kid-powered and didn't have too many adults getting involved and taking over. Uh, one thing that did stay consistent was the character Abuelita, who's Rick's neighbor, and she considers herself the best driver in L.A., and she genuinely is the best driver in L.A. She just elects to show it in her own way. Uh, she was in my story from the very beginning as a counterpart to Rick, because both of them have a talent that no one pays much attention to because of their ages. And the smooth driving Abuelita knows that you should never judge what a person can do by how old they are. What about you, Polly? 
This one didn't change that much. This book sort of came out with a good rhythm and a structure and ready to go, which isn't always the case. Of course, some books are easier than other ones. Um, with everything on a waffle, I remember I rewrote it eight times, changing the voice from first person to third to back to first, back to third, because I just couldn't decide which it should be. And that was really a nightmare. The title did change. It was Pine Island Home. Uh, later originally it was Martha's Boat which I still think is a better title yeah I've heard that before (laughs) (laughs) you read each other's books do you have questions you'd like to ask each other maybe talk about me and my incessant need for a timeline I can plug my ears if you'd like yeah well I now make a timeline before I do anything else so I have learned a good skill uh Polly, my kids and I have read all your books and we quote them to each other uh, as if uh, you're part of the family. So I'm curious as to whether you consider yourself more of a plotter, knowing generally where your story is going to go before you write it, or if you're more of a pantser, flying along by the seat of your pants and sometimes being surprised where your story and your characters end up. Well, the only book that I I wrote with a structure ahead of time uh, where I plotted it out was The Trolls, and I knew the ending, and that created a kind of darker foreshadowing for the stories leading up to it. But generally, I trust, as Gore Vidal says, that writing is like driving a car through the fog. You can only see as far as the headlights shine, but that's as far as you need to see. Hmm. Christina, you say on your website that you always promise your readers a happy ending. In an interview with P.L. Travers years ago, she said that you can take children into the woods, but you must always bring them back again. How important do you think it is to give children a happy ending and why? I think it's important to offer a happy ending as an option. And I want to be the writer that kids can trust to deliver that without having to be suspicious of what my story might do. Uh, As a young reader, I felt full-on betrayed when an author handed me a painful ending. My favorite middle-grade books were the ones that made me wonder if real life could be full of unexpected magic or strange fun things, not the ones that introduced me to a new kind of suffering. So I write for the reader I used to be. Uh, And I know books can give kids a safe place to process difficult emotions and experiences, And I applaud those writers who know how to craft those stories for the readers that want them. That's not me. My books are instead going to be that place to escape and to laugh. And you hope for the best and it's going to happen. Before we wrap up, we're asking all our author guests to sign our guest book. What message would you like to leave our listeners with? Polly? Buy a child a book. And I know that sounds ruthlessly commercial. Uh, but I mean it in the best way. I remember so well a house guest when I was a little girl once bringing us our own beautiful hardcover copy of Mary Poppins. And I remember everything about that book, the way it smelled, the crisp new pages, the book jacket, the way it looked. And then she sat down and she read us the first chapter that night. And I remember how special and wonderful it was to have our own copy and how I read it over and over. And I still have it. I still have every book I owned as a child. And they still excite me just to look at them. Christina? Never forget that the world is wider, weirder, and more wonderful than you can imagine. Thank you, Polly and Christina, for doing this with me. Thank you for editing our books, Margaret, and giving us a chance to do this together. Thanks, Margaret. My pleasure, as always. Thank you.